Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Today's show is sponsored by ThirdBridge. ThirdBridge is a widely used provider of expert interview transcripts whose clients include past guests on the show. Their content covers both public and private companies in any sector across all the major geographies around the world. To give you a sense, last year, over 16,000 investment professionals from 1,000 firms across private equity, public equity, and credit downloaded approximately 500,000 interview transcripts from ThirdBridge Forum. Each of those transcripts covers a one-hour in-depth interview between an unbiased sector analyst and an industry executive. I've seen the platform and the coverage is incredible, ranging from mature mega caps to leading edge innovators like Stripe and SpaceX to thematic topics like crypto exchanges and alternative energy in China to just about everything in between. ThirdBridge created this category of research and has by far the largest content platform available. If you're an asset manager or capital allocator looking to better understand your manager's positioning, visit thirdbridge.com slash capital for a try. Today's show is also sponsored by Janice Henderson Investors. In an environment where allocators face more questions than answers, having a trusted partner is critical. Janice Henderson Investors is committed to building partnerships with institutional investors based on collaboration, insights, and transparency with the goal of helping clients generate desired investment outcomes. With 26 offices and 350 investment professionals worldwide, Janice Henderson has the scale to offer global perspective across equities, fixed income, and alternatives, and the depth to offer local expertise and support for clients. To learn more about partnering with Janice Henderson, visit JaniceHenderson.com slash U.S. Institutional. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. Mark Andreessen from A16Z famously proclaimed a decade ago that software is eating the world. His prophecy has proved prescient. Cloud computing enabled the rapid, cost-effective deployment of software, startups flourished, and venture capital returns have been phenomenal. Venture capital is a fascinating investment area whose many days in the sun shine brightest this year. Institutional portfolios with large venture allocations soared to their best year in history. And yet, parts of venture are unique in being both efficient and unactionable. Many believe that Sequoia or Benchmark will produce returns at the top of the pack, but there's not much action anyone can take to participate. 
This miniseries explores the industry, focusing on some favorites of institutional investors who are still investable to those in the loop. Each has a great differentiated story to share and something to prove. That said, this field moves quickly, so as the disclaimer goes, past accessibility is not a guarantee of future capacity. My guest on the final episode of Ventures Eating the Investment World is Sebastian Malaby, the Paul A. Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations, a contributing columnist for The Washington Post, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, and New York Times bestselling author. His most recent book, The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future, chronicles the history of the industry, and his key takeaways serve as the perfect conclusion to our miniseries. Our conversation starts with his career as a writer and how he approaches writing books. We then dive into the origins of the venture industry, foundations of early stage investing, and critical success factors. We dissect different ownership structures, the importance of mentorship, competition, the current pace of capital deployment, and venture capital abroad. And we close with a discussion of the industry's gender gap, challenges to future success, and thoughts on Sebastian's next project. Ventures Eating the Investment World is brought to you by Omni. Omni helps private capital investors track and analyze individual deals while providing comprehensive financial and legal insights across their portfolio. It houses the largest database of investment transactions in the private markets extracted directly from executed agreements, including the legal terms, co-investor details, liquidity preferences, valuations, and round sizes. With that information, investors can make faster investment decisions, benchmark deal terms, understand market trends, and enhance portfolio analytics. Omni's clients include leading venture funds, corporate venture groups, family offices, and endowments, including a number of past guests on the show. You can learn more at omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Please enjoy my conversation with Sebastian Malaby in the final episode of Venture is Eating the Investment World. Sebastian, wonderful to see you. Great to be with you, Ted. I thought it'd be fun to dive in with how you got from writing about hedge funds to venture capital. So I'd done actually three different books about financial history, roughly from 1960 to now. There was a book about the World Bank, about development economics, told through the practitioners at the World Bank. There was More Money Than God, a book about efficient market theory and the gaps in it and how market practitioners apply that when they're at hedge funds. And then a book about monetary economics through the biography of Alan Greenspan. And then looking around for the next exciting thing, I went for anti-finance. In other words, venture capital. It strikes me that it's so different to every other type of finance I'd studied. Rather than being accused of ignoring tail events, as people in public markets are sometimes accused, these people at venture capital partnerships only care about tail events. It's all about that extreme, disruptive, 10x, 20x outlier. And the middle of the distribution in a venture capital portfolio is pretty much a loss. It's a startup that goes to zero because that's what the majority do. So it's so different. There's no price to earnings ratio when you're looking at an early stage company because there's no earnings. There is no book value. So you just got these situations where all investment is, of course, a judgment about the future and it's uncertain, but this is to an extreme because there's no quantitative guideline and so forth. And just that novelty struck me as fascinating and I wanted to understand it. Before we dive in a little bit to the early history, what's your process like in writing such detailed and broad book like this? Patience is the first ingredient. It does take me five years. That's mostly because understanding the subject and getting to see the people who are really at the center of it is a long process. You start by going to friends who might know friends who are related to the subject, and you go speak to those people. And at the end of every conversation, you say, well, if there are two or three people you can introduce me to, that would be great. And you build the network, and eventually you get to know the people who know the real people. If it all goes well, 
you've gotten to the center of the industry and had a chance to sit down with people who really explain how it works. And that's just a long process. And so I think the first requirement is persistence and patience. Well, let's start back at the beginning. You refer to the early history of the industry as this idea of liberation capital. Love to hear how that all came about. You always look for an origin story when you're writing a history like this. And one can always debate these origin stories. Some people would say that American research and development, which was started in 1946 in Boston, was the first post-war tech-focused venture capital operation. Or the Rockefeller family office, which turned into Venrock later, is another contender. But I chose Arthur Rock, who was the pioneer of West Coast venture capital, because he was the one who was the first then to set up a fund that succeeded, that we would recognize as similar to the funds that we see today. And he was also the first one to really invest in a manner that understood the power law. In other words, he understood that to manage risk in tech investing, you have to actually embrace risk, go for the most audacious projects you can find, because it's all about partnering with these audacious companies that are real outliers. So Arthur Rock was the origin story I was going to focus on. And it turns out that when I looked into the details of how he did his first famous deal, which was the backing of Fairchild Semiconductor. This is the story of the traitorous eight scientists who quit working for the Nobel Prize winner, William Shockley. And they wanted to leave because Shockley was a genius and inventor of the transistor, but terrible guy to work for. And they were bumming and ahhing about whether they could leave and whether they could maybe find another company to work for. And Arthur Rock flew out to California to meet with them and said, listen, you don't have to find another company to work for you can start your own company. And they said, but we don't have any capital. And he said, well, I'll raise the capital. You can do this. And he kind of pushed them into it, including saying, you're going to need a leader. At the moment, you just have a collective of scientists, but somebody who's going to lead this company and helping to set them up. And so he really liberated them from 1950s corporate culture, where it was expected that you would work loyally for one company and retire when you're 60 with a gold watch. And he liberated them from the idea of even leaving one to join another one, which would have been radical enough. And Gordon Moore, who was one of the founders of Fairchild Semiconductor, and of course later went on to do Intel and also to have his name affixed to the famous Moore's Law, he said that he was an accidental entrepreneur, that somebody like him didn't have the aggression and risk appetite to go and start a company. He had to be pushed into it. And the man who pushed him into it was this first West Coast venture capitalist, Arthur Rock, who gave him that nudge at the right time, liberating him from corporate servitude. If you look at the foundations of venture capital in the early days, two of the things you talk about are the active involvement in venture capitalists in companies and stage-by-stage investing. And we'd love to hear which organizations really started those key foundations of how venture capital works today. After Arthur Rock set up his time-limited equity-only fund at the beginning of the 1960s and did very well, a bunch of imitators came forward because the news of his extraordinary returns had leaked out. And the two most consequential started in 1972. These were Sequoia Capital, founded by Don Valentine, and then Kleiner Perkins, which was founded by Eugene Kleiner, who was one of the traitorous eight whom Rock had backed in 1957. And then secondly, Tom Perkins, who was a sort of a flamboyant computer executive slash entrepreneur who had done a laser company of his own. And these two companies, Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins, improvised two things in the 1970s. The first was this hands-on approach. Arthur Rock had been a financier by background. He had been important in things like devising equity stock options and devising the financial structure of the startups that he backed, he was not an operator. Whereas Don Valentine had been a semiconductor salesman and was very much an operator businessman, not a financier at all, really, just somebody who liked to build companies who understood business. And Tom Perkins, likewise, who turned out to be the driving force in Kleiner Perkins, he had done his own entrepreneurial startup. He had been a senior manager at 
Hewlett-Packard, he was very much hands-on as well. So the two of them, in different ways, saw opportunities in startups that were really had a product idea but didn't have a business organization. And Atari is a good illustration of this. Atari was the first video game company with a gloriously simple game called Pong. You just moved a little ping pong bat icon, the little line on the screen, you moved it up and down, and you had to avoid missing the ball to get a high score. You could do this when you were gloriously and heroically drunk. So it went down very well in bars in the Bay Area. And Atari had made this game, a few marijuana smoking hippie-ish engineers, and they were ready to build some more games. But the culture of the business was such that you had to agree as the investor, if you wanted to go to a board meeting, to take your clothes off and get into the hot tub with the founder. You had to put up with the fact that expenses for travel were sometimes paid before the travel took place, and then the employee would just run off with the money and never come back. It was chaotic. And Don Valentine, a former Navy water polo player, was the kind of person who could take his shirt off and it would actually enhance his authority. So he got into the hot tub and he imposed discipline on that chaotic business culture. He took the genius of their games and he compounded it and married it with a determination to actually make an organization that functioned. So Atari went from chaos to a valuable exit. And that was really the birth of hands-on venture investing. And how about stage-by-stage investing? So let's bring in Tom Perkins for this part of the story. Genentech, the first biotechnology success story, was incubated from the Kleiner Perkins offices. It was actually an associate at Kleiner Perkins called Bob Swanson, who had not stayed because he hadn't actually made the cut. Perkins had cut him off the payroll And Swanson had been looking around for something to do after being a Kleiner Perkins associate. And he'd come up with this idea of using recombinant DNA technology to create medicines. And he was targeting insulin. He'd found a scientist at the University of California at San Francisco to partner with. And they were going to go off and make this first biotech company. And they came to Tom Perkins for funding. And they said, we need... And then they named some large amount of money because they wanted to have a lab with lots of salaried scientists who were going to conduct the experiments necessary to see if they could do this artificial insulin. They didn't know if they could, so there was enormous technical risk. And Perkins looked at this and said, OK, I've got a better idea. We're going to give you a tenth of what you asked for in capital terms. And it's just enough money to get you through the first experiments to see if you can eliminate the most obvious reasons why this just wouldn't work technically. We're going to take what Perkins called the white hot risks off the table. Once we've gotten those risks out of the way, we've de-risked the company to some extent, and then I'm happy to give you more capital. But at least if you fail, you're going to fail cheaply. And by the way, also, this is good for you, the entrepreneurs, because when you raise the second tranche of capital, you will have taken those white hot risks away. So you can demand a higher valuation for your project, it'll be less dilutive for you. So they proceeded to build Genentech in these stage-by-stage rounds of capital, and it worked, and it was a fantastic exit on the stock market in 1980. And it really entrenched this idea of not giving all the capital up front, much better for both the investor and the entrepreneur to do it stage-by-stage with milestones of progress along the way. So from those early foundations, in the book, you walk through the next subsequent decades and a bunch of experience of a bunch of the most successful firms we know today. I was wondering, when you step away from that, what you saw as some of the most important success factors in the evolution of the industry over those years? So I think the first takeaway as to the drivers of success for venture capital is you always have to be building your network. Venture capital is different from other kinds of investing because public markets, if you want to buy a security, you tell your trader or you call your broker and you buy the security. There's a price you might have to pay, but it's not normally difficult to get access to the thing you want to buy. Whereas in venture capital, the security is a person. And unless you get in front of that person and sit down with that person and persuade them that they want your money, 
you're not going to have a chance to make the investment. So building your network is the first thing. And when I was doing my research about the early phase, I remember sitting down with a VC from Sutter Hill, which was a big firm back in the day. And he described getting into the business. He put networking as the number one thing he did. It wasn't just one thing. He basically started by compiling a list of the 15 smartest people he knew in Silicon Valley and going to have lunch with each of them. And at the end of the lunch, he would say, can you tell me who is the absolute smartest person you know? And then he would go and see that person. He would build this list. Then he would curate the list by staying in touch with people and telephoning and saying, hey, I had lunch with so-and-so and he asked how you were doing and sent his best regards. Or he would send them an academic paper that might be relevant to their research. He really made networking his number one objective. And out of that came early warning on potential deals. Out of that came a sense of what people were up to so you could evaluate deals because you knew if somebody else was doing the same thing already. So networking, I think, is the number one skill that a venture capitalist needs. So from networking, which gets you the sourcing of ideas, how about thoughts on the process of assessing deals? I think number two is to have what they call a prepared mind. This is a phrase that comes from one of the founders of Axel Capital, set up in 1983. And he had this saying, chance favors the prepared mind. It was taken from the scientist Pascal. And his idea was when an entrepreneur comes to see you, you need to know 90% of what they're going to say before they open their mouth. Because you have already figured out that there is an emerging technological wave. Let's say it's the spreading of networking technology in the 1980s or more recent era, it might have been the rise of cloud computing or the rise of AI. And you understand what are the businesses that need to be built to make the most out of those emerging technological waves. So with cloud computing, it might be you need security for your information when it goes up into the cloud. You might need new kinds of semiconductor architecture to make the cloud systems work the best. But you've imagined all that in advance. And you've also imagined even the type of entrepreneur who is going to succeed in each category. So if it's some sort of new semiconductor architecture, you might have a sense of the other incumbent semiconductor firms that are closest to what you're looking for, and therefore somebody who spins out of one of those incumbents to do their own project. If it's the right kind of incumbent, that's a very good sign that this is the right kind of person to be founding the new company. So I think that prepared mind idea is the second key ingredient for a venture capitalist. And how about when it comes to making decisions? Here, I think decision science, behavioral science is pretty helpful. Sequoia, the top venture capital partnership in the world probably, has formally incorporated decision science into the way it allocates capital. So it understands that human beings are wired in ways that bias decisions and some of that can be pretty consequential for good venture investing. So, for example, we know that we have loss aversion, meaning we are willing to gamble to avoid a loss, but we wouldn't gamble the same amount to reach for the upside. And since venture capital is all about reaching for the upside, you better try to correct that bias because otherwise you're going to miss those outlier events, which are really what drive power law returns. The way that Sequoia addresses this bias is that it says when you're going to write a memo to the partnership about a startup that you think we should back, the investment memo, it must include a pre-parade section, meaning the section where you dream about how fantastic this startup could turn out to be if everything went right. Just dream a little. When you're required to write that section of the memo, you are obliged to admit to how excited you are. Normally, as one Sequoia partner said to me, you know, we're human beings, we don't want to be embarrassed, we don't want to say how excited we are, because most of the time something will go slightly wrong and then you'll look dumb. But as venture capitalists, it is our job to be embarrassed. So I think correcting behavioral biases and trying to hone your decision-making mechanisms, that's the third requirement of great venture capital. It seems like, certainly in the last decade, maybe starting with Andreessen, there's been real changes in how venture capitalists try to help their businesses. would love to get your perspectives on the different iterations of value added of owners of these businesses. 
Yes. So as I mentioned, going back to the 1970s, there was value added. That was the discovery of the hands-on method I described with Atari. As time has gone by, competition in this value-add space has become more intense. So venture capitalists have had to get better at adding value to the portfolio company because not only is that going to make the value of the company go up, but also you won't even get into the deal unless you can tell the entrepreneur prospectively before you do the deal that, hey, if you partner with me, I'm going to really help to build this company. As entrepreneurs say all the time, money is fungible, talent is not. So you're not really taking capital from the VC because of the capital. You're taking capital because you really want to have the input and advice and guidance and inspiration from a certain individual who's going to go on your board and be in the trenches with you. And that has grown more sophisticated partly by specialization. Venture capitalists sometimes say, I'm only doing a certain kind of SaaS software or whatever it is, and I really, really know this space. And I've done lots of companies in this space. I know what's going on and I can really predict the operating, implementing roadblocks you're going to hit unless you do X, Y, Z in advance. You can add more value if you're more specialized. That's one kind of trend. Another trend is to build out your venture capital partnership with expertise. Andreessen Horowitz takes this to the extreme by having really a big quasi-consulting operation under its own roof that is there to go off and help entrepreneurs streamline things like, how do you find office space? Well, we've got someone to help with that. How do you write your first press release? We've got someone to help with that. How do you recruit talent? We've got a whole bunch of people who do that. How do you figure out whether policy changes in Washington, D.C. may affect your business? Well, we have an office that will help you with that. So that's a consulting approach to this. There are other versions of it, which probably derive from a Y Combinator model where you put entrepreneurs into a group and you offer classes, immersions, networking events. That is done by several partnerships. But again, I'll take Sequoia as an example. They have off-sites where they get entrepreneurs together and they encourage them to network among themselves and share ideas. They have online virtual versions of that networking among entrepreneurs. They have mini startup colleges where entrepreneurs can get speed introductions to everything from go-to-market strategy to do's and don'ts of recruiting or whatever it might be. So sophistication in adding value is one of the races that's going on in the industry. There are a couple of outliers like Peter Thiel, who has argued in the past, it's better to focus only on allocating capital. And if the entrepreneur is going to make it and generate that power law return, really, the entrepreneur has got to be so brilliant that you're not going to be much help by trying to provide advice. But I think even Peter Thiel these days would say that he was trying to be a bit contrarian when he advanced that view when he started Founders Fund back in 2005. He wouldn't insist on it that much today. And I think the vast majority of VCs are differentiating themselves by adding value after the deal. So we're going to take a quick break from the conversation to tell you about Paragon Intel. There's a reason that the world's top hedge funds use Paragon Intel to drive alpha. Through investor-focused tools and best-in-class custom reports, Paragon Intel enables its clients to consistently produce outperforming longs and shorts across dozens of sectors. How do they do this? It's through a proven process linking executive analysis with company performance. Paragon has the leading library of in-depth interviews about CEOs and the most sophisticated analytics database on every public company executive. If your fund wants the same advantage that the world's leading hedge funds get with Paragon Intel, go to paragonintel.com slash TED and enjoy exclusive access to in-depth interviews on a CEO of your choice. And now, back to the show. I'd love to touch on the key issues in thinking about the industry and success factors. And one of them is this idea of serial correlation, where for the most part, though not entirely, it does seem that successful partnerships in the past continue to be successful. I'm curious your perspective of when that has worked and then when it has faltered. Clearly, there is a Midas touch effect, reputation effect, that if you're a hot partnership, you've done great deals, then entrepreneurs want to come to you and you get a great reputation and 
that can be self-fulfilling. So some serial correlation seems extremely likely to exist. And going into my project, I almost didn't write this book because I was worried that you might be able to tell a story that if you had 100 VCs who opened up their offices in year one, by the law of probability, two or three of these people would do three hot deals in the first 18 months. And then that would lead to the best entrepreneurs going to those guys. And it would just be a combination of luck at the outset combined with serial correlation after that. And that wouldn't be an interesting book to write. But actually, serial correlation, although it exists, is weak. The academic studies on this suggest that if you have an IPO in one of your early bets, yes, the likelihood of later bets turning into IPOs is up a bit, but it's up sort of 1.6%. It's not really definitive. And another way of testing this idea is if you look at charts that have been made of the top 10 or so partnerships in any time period, look at the 70s, then the 80s, then the 90s, there is some flux. I mean, Benchmark and Sequoia have been at or near the top, but many have moved. So if you take Kleiner Perkins, for example, it was the top venture partnership in the world in 2001. By 2021, it was not in the top 10. So there can be these shifts. And I think the shifts have to do with the difference between brilliant individuals and brilliant firm culture. Where you have brilliant individuals, when those people go off the boil or they retire or whatever, the performance is going to collapse. And that's sort of what happened with Kleiner Perkins. They had two amazing investors, Vinod Kostler and John Doerr. Vinod decided to go off and do his own company. And John Doerr lost his footing when he put too much money into cleantech in the 2000s. And they didn't have a Kleiner Perkins advantage. They just had a coaster and door advantage. Whereas other partnerships seem to be able to generate internally fantastically skilled investors who are not just hired in, they are built. And when you've got a culture that can build skill, that's enduring. And Benchmark seems to have that. Sequoia seems to have that. Excel, for the most part, I would say, has done that since 1983. It hasn't been continuously in the top handful, but it's been closer to that than not. So there are companies that do this, but not all manage it. How do those firms go about training great investors in the next generation? I think it's about creating incentives for the senior investors to really take seriously the idea of putting time into mentoring the younger ones and to be really generous about that, to really seek ways of putting your own interests second because the future of the franchise really depends on the younger people being as good as you are. And you're not going to be at the top of your game forever. So you've got to get the succession plan in place. And that's not number five on your list. It's number one. Michael Moritz of Sequoia likes to say when people ask him, what's your favorite investment? He doesn't say Yahoo or Google or even Stripe, which are all investments that he's done. He says, my favorite investment is Sequoia. It's the effort I put into the partnership itself that has paid off the most. And this isn't just talk. I mean, Samir Gandhi is a successful VC at Axel today. When he was getting started in the industry, he was at Sequoia. And he described to me how one day Michael Moritz, the co-leader of the company, sat down with him and said, let's have a look at your schedule. I want to figure out whether you're managing your time in the optimal way. VCs never have enough time to meet with everyone they want to see. And he literally went through his schedule and said, well, maybe this one you didn't need to do, or perhaps that one could have been a phone call, not a meeting. That level of attention to detail, of putting time in. The best story about this that I heard from Sequoia was to do with Rudolf Berter, who's now this emergent leader of the firm, who when he was in his late 20s joined Sequoia, he had the most ideal resume you can imagine for a VC. He had been the CFO at PayPal, a successful startup. He had been top of his class at Stanford Business School, the whole works. But he hadn't been an investor. And when he brought in the first deal he wanted to do, which was a remittances company, one of the senior investors partnered with him and said, Rudolf, we're going to go to the board meetings together. I will be the board member at first. You will watch and you will see how it's done. And then we're going to make a decision. If this company is going down the tubes, I, the senior investor, will remain on the board and the black mark will be on my resume and I don't mind that. But if it's going to succeed, we're going to switch positions so that when it gets that lucrative exit, 
it would be your win and your reputation would be burnished and your chances of doing the next great deal will go up. And that is generous, but it's also smart. Benchmark says that it achieves the same effect because it has this equal partnership structure where if there are six partners, let's say, and they bring in the seventh, even if the seventh is inexperienced and younger and so forth, that new partner gets the same share of the carry as all the older established people. That means that if the young partner generates a great investment and a great outcome, the other partners are each getting one-seventh of the upside for themselves in their own compensation. They have a big incentive to put time into nurturing and mentoring and training that new recruit. So I think that's a big differentiator between the enduring partnerships and those that do not endure. So would you have an industry with a handful of real leaders that have been enduring partnerships? How does the rest of the industry think about competing with them? Sometimes the answer is to differentiate, to be, let's say, a solo VC. There's been a bit of a trend of that. And say, the heck with building a franchise. Our goal is, I'm going to be a solo VC. I'm going to have my own personal network, my own personal qualities. I won't be leading as many deals, although I want to lead some, but I can add value in my own particular way. So in a way, that's an anti-competition strategy. Just don't even try to build something like that. Another way of coming at it is to use hedge fund parlance. Sequoia is so good at alpha that I'm going to go for beta. I'm going to have a strategy where I'm not necessarily the most brilliant company builder, but I will deploy capital into tech generally at such an amazing speed that my dollar returns will be higher. And that's the Tiger Global late stage investment strategy. Masayoshi Son pioneered this and then took it to the highest, most extreme level with his enormous vision fund. And the game there is not really value add and choosing the right company and working with the founder and being on the board and rolling up your sleeves. Never mind all that. It's not really value add. It's value add for the LPs, potentially. But it's just tech is going up. I want lots of it. And I'm going to deploy massively and I'm going to have an index fund for private tech companies. So I think those are the two ways of competing with Sequoia. In the last couple of years, we've seen that certainly pace of deployment is up, the number of players is up, valuations are up. I'm curious how you think this plays out going forward. Let's talk about this through the lens of Tiger Global. I have a lot of respect for the founders, Chase Coleman, the first founder, then Scott Schleifer, the first person who became a partner with him. I went to see them a couple of times each, and I think they've built an amazing company. They've had, I don't know what, a dozen funds or something in private investing that have done terrifically well. On the other hand, there's no escaping the fact that the current fund, which was deployed basically last year in 2021, was putting enormous amounts of money into late stage deals that now can't go public at the anticipated valuation given the correction in the public market. So the current fund has either got to be a big down fund or they're going to eke it out. I suspect that's more likely. They're just going to take the time they need, redeploy money, move it around, ultimately return capital to investors, but it's going to be a long, grueling struggle. Because basically late stage is a game where it goes great when you're harvesting beta and the market's going up, so beta is positive, and you get killed when it goes down. It's as simple as that. And it's not a dumb strategy because tech probably goes up more than it goes down. So you're going to have a dozen funds that you enjoy, and you'll have to accept one where you take it on the chin. What Tiger Global is doing in response to this is they've just announced that they're going to put a billion dollars into seed investing. In other words, they're going to the other end of the spectrum where the exit for a seed company is five or more years away. So who cares what the public markets are doing in 2022, because you're not looking for an exit until much later than that. It's interesting to see how that plays out because a billion dollars for seeds is a lot of money. I mean, if a big seed investment is half a million dollars, that's 2,000 startups. They're going to receive half million dollar checks and be invited to go off and conduct some kind of experiment in applied science. It would probably be great for innovation. I'm sure also a lot of those experiments will go nowhere. One of the trends over the last decade or so has been this expansion of U.S.-based venture capital internationally. 
And some of that's been through these franchise venture capitalists. And I know you wrote a chapter in the book about venture in China. And world's changing rapidly as we're talking now, but would love to get your thoughts on venture capital abroad. One of the exciting things is the way that venture capital is spreading. You know, it's spreading along the life cycle of companies with later exits. It's spreading into new industries, food tech or climate tech or what have you. And it's spreading geographically. And I think that's really positive for the world. It's transforming the ability for people to do startups globally. And that means more innovation, more productivity spillovers, more growth, more prosperity. I'm really excited by that. I think one thing I come up against when I describe my optimism is people saying, well, yes, but we're in London or wherever we are. And we just don't have that risk-taking attitude that they have in Silicon Valley. We don't believe that failure is a learning experience. We just think it's failure. And we just don't drink the same Kool-Aid that those guys out in Silicon Valley have. And we wish we could get some. And my answer is that culture is not static, that when you introduce venture capital into an economy, it changes the way people think about risk. I was talking on a Zoom call recently to the person who runs Axel in Bangalore, India. And he told me a great story, which I think illustrates the point here. He was somebody who had been to business school in the US. He had been an entrepreneur in the US for maybe a decade. He came back to India in 2010 and started doing venture capital with Axel. And he said to me that when he began, he got a call from a founder that he had invested in. And the founder said, I need your help. So the VC says, sure, what do you need? And the founder says, I need to get married. And the VC says, wait, what do you mean? Why are you talking to me about this? And the founder says, well, my girlfriend has a father who will not allow the marriage to go ahead because I'm an entrepreneur and the prospective father-in-law thinks that entrepreneur is a loser. And you, Mr. Venture Capitalist, you've been to business school in the United States. You have standing and stature. You can call my prospective father-in-law and explain to him that entrepreneur does not equal loser. So the VC says, okay, I get it. He makes the call. The marriage goes ahead. And then I ask, hmm. Do you still make that kind of telephone call for your founders? And the venture capitalist says, no, no need. Today, all the prospective father-in-laws are watching Shark Tank in Hindi. So what that tells you is that in a decade, the culture has changed from entrepreneur equals loser and my daughter won't marry one to, oh yeah, bring it on. I'm watching Shark Tank. I can't get enough of this. And I think that's true of Europe too. I think that historically, Europe has had a ton of trained technical people. They often went off and put their engineering education to work in London doing derivatives. But there's no shortage of software people or engineers in Europe. It's a big consumer market. And what it's been missing was a risk-taking entrepreneurial culture. But you put VCs into the mix. And as I began by describing with Liberation Capital in the 1950s in the US and Arthur Rock, there wasn't really an entrepreneurial culture in the United States in the 1950s. It was organization man territory. It was join the company and be loyal to it. Europe's current commercial climate is no more anti-entrepreneurial than the US was in the 1950s. And you can create entrepreneurship if the venture capitalist comes along and says to the reluctant entrepreneur, yes, I know it's scary, but I'm here to help you. I'll give you the capital. I will be on your board. I will advise you. I've done other startups before. I know how these things scale. You're worried about recruiting the first five people you need to build a product with you, but I have a network and I will help you to recruit those first five engineers. You're worried that these engineers don't want to take the risk of joining a startup because startups often fail. So I will explain to these engineers, yes, startups do fail quite a bit, but you know what? I back a lot of startups. And if this one fails, I will slot you into another company where you'll have a second chance. So venture capital is a machine for manufacturing courage. I believe that you can spread entrepreneurship around the world to pretty much anywhere. Another issue that's come up is the gender divide in venture capital. And as you go through the history, it's pretty clear what's happened historically. How have you seen that evolving? I think the story here is partly that venture capital got going in the US in the 60s and 70s, when it was pretty typical to have very, very few women involved in high-profile professions. And then that became a self-fulfilling pattern where these tight-knit partnerships consisting of five, six, seven partners 
recruited people who looked like themselves, and then they went and backed entrepreneurs who looked like they did. And it's partly that networks have an upside, as I've been saying, that you need to be able to check out the background of the entrepreneur. You need to be able to work very closely with them. So you need a level of confidence in them that comes from checking out through mutual friends who this person is. So networks, when they look a certain way, tend to perpetuate themselves and continue to look that way. And it's interesting to me that ecosystems that got started later, for example, China, are more gender diverse than the US one has been. But I think today in the US, what's happening is that people are waking up to the fact that this is a real problem, that if you look at venture investors in Silicon Valley and find that 16% only are women, that is an absurdly low number. And if you look at the proportion who are African-American, it's only 3%, and that's a crazy low number. And you've got to do something about it, partly for reasons of social justice and partly because you're going to miss deals if you do not have somebody on your team who understands different perspectives. There could be a product that is going to be used by women more than men, and you might want to back that product. So I think people are waking up to this. I think it's going to take some time to get it right, but it is changing. What do you see as some of the other key challenges going forward for continued success in this industry? It's always going to be a boom-bust sector because there's no mechanism for reining in enthusiasm. Venture capitalists sometimes say, I've never met a pessimist who succeeded in this business. You have to be positive because you're making these long shot, low probability, but high consequence bets. And if you're always looking for the negative and the problem, you'll never deploy capital. So it attracts optimists. And then on top of that, you're not allowed to go short because this is private markets. You can't go short. And you can't even say short sentiment because if you do that, you won't be syndicated into the next tranche of the deal and you'll be ostracized from the ecosystem if you're dumping on somebody else's deal. So there is no mechanism for reining in the bullish positivity. And the only mechanism is basically when public markets correct. The tiger global phenomenon of deploying capital at a high rate until the music stops, and then you're going to have a fund that loses money, that's built in. So I think one challenge for the sector is to understand that, to ride through that. What other challenges might there be? There's a regulatory threat. There's been a tech clash. Society is not entirely happy with the tech giants. I argue that if you don't like big tech, you should be very in favor of small tech, which challenges the power of the platform monopoly. So small tech means new startups backed by venture capital. You should be in favor of venture capital. But I'm not sure that argument is cutting through the public debate. I think there's a slight danger that there'll be a backlash that affects the regulatory environment around venture capital. And I think the third thing I would mention is geopolitics, that money has flown across borders fairly easily. But particularly when it comes to US-China today, it's not clear that future will continue. Companies in Silicon Valley that have built big operations in China may face a point where they need to separate the two brands. Well, Sebastian, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you've turned your thoughts to what your next project might be five years out. Well, it's not five years out because you have to get started soon in order to deliver the book in five years, given my process. My kids say I'm absurdly slow. I just say I'm perfectionist. I'll leave you to decide. So what am I thinking about? I haven't got a fixed idea. I'm fascinated by Web3, NFTs, crypto, blockchain, all that stuff. I think we're at a point where we're looking for the use cases that are really going to stick, but I believe there will be some. So I'm keen to find an angle that would allow me to write about that. It's such a chaotic and fascinating and evolving space. I haven't quite fixed on the angle. Great. Well, Sebastian, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I say hiking, but that's often with my family. Otherwise, I think most of the things I love, whether it's watching fun movies or reading books, are things that then end up in family discussions. So it's hard to divorce the thing I'm not meant to mention with the things I love. What's your biggest pet peeve? People often say when they're advising young people what to do with their careers, they say, pursue your passion. Money doesn't matter. I think that's dangerous advice given by people for whom money doesn't matter because they've already got plenty. I actually think that money does matter and you need to be realistic when you're 20 or 22 or whatever it is about choosing a pursuit that will give you at least enough money to 
be creative, to have time and energy left over to do the things you want to do in a way to be what you want to be, because you will be able to make cleaner moral choices if you're not scrapping for the next money. I'm not saying that money is the thing. I just think that people rhetorically downplay it too much. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Well, definitely my wife, who is a fantastic journalist and public policy intellectual. So that's been huge to be living with somebody who is always fizzing with ideas and I can bounce ideas off her and I always end up smarter after half an hour driving to see her friends or whatever. We get to talk in the car and it's a learning experience all the time. Secondly, I'd say there have been mentor journalists along the way who have taught me a lot, but probably the individual who's mattered the most in my writing is my editor at Penguin Press, Scott Moyers who has been my editor on three books and my agent for a fourth book when he had a brief rotation into being a literary agent. And he is just a wonderful editor and a wonderful friend. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? An answer I would deliver with a conviction level of 50% is to say that I spent a very long time, not five years, but actually six years writing my biography of Alan Greenspan. And I ended up with a book which I'm proud of and I think is a definitive contribution to the history of central banking and all that stuff. I don't regret it really, but it is true that that was a long time to spend on one book. And if I can be more on the four to five years, that's better than six years. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I think the biggest thing is that family is just deeply, deeply rewarding. And my father was a career civil servant, a career diplomat, a British ambassador in France and in Germany. For him, the joys of traveling, of speaking fluent Russian, German, and French, of being in the mix in public policy, these were big things in his life. But no matter how hard he worked and how successful he was, he always put his four children and his wife first. And I think that might have come from the fact that his own father had been killed in the Second World War when he was young. He didn't really have a father growing up. And he was just super grateful every day that he did have a great family. And that remains with me, both in my relationships with my three siblings and in my relationships with my four children and my wife. All right, Sebastian, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think I've come to feel a satisfaction in screening out the general noise of the crowd and focusing on the thing that I love. I'm thinking here of the way that I went from doing a degree at Oxford in history and writing undergraduate, but still pretty serious, long papers, to then writing journalistic pieces on whatever subject I was told to write about, spreading myself pretty thin. And I had a great time. It was fun. I learned a lot. I became very broad in the subjects where I could give you at least a paragraph worth of wisdom. But I think now that I've made book writing my main professional pursuit, although I still do journalism, the journalism often derives from subjects that I've written books about. I think there's just this deep satisfaction in feeling that you've mastered a subject to the point where you're really sure of what you're saying, that you're really sure you're contributing something. There's so much social media, so much in the way of quick commentary out there that I think I can differentiate by doing slow commentary deep commentary and deliver opinions that I'm really pretty sure about. That's wonderful, Sebastian. This is a fabulous way for us to close out a whole series of episodes on the venture industry. So thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and taking the time. My pleasure, Ted. Thank you for all you do. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. An important disclaimer from Janice Henderson Group, PLC. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principle and fluctuation of value.